Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by author, illustrator, and natural historian Sammy Bailey. Sammy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. (laughs) No worries. Now, you've recently published uh, what is probably one of the most beautiful natural history books out there uh, called The Illustrated Encyclopedia of Ugly Animals. Suffice to say, it's been kind of a whopping success. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been pretty crazy, I'd say, 12 months or, or it's, yeah, it's been very unexpected. <laughs> so when, when did it actually come out? So it came out um, in September last year, but um, yeah. just the lead up to it, when, when it came to handing it all in and preparing for what would be the release, it was mm. just an enti- uh, entirely new world that I was... Um, very new to and had to learn everything very quickly. So, And this is your first book? Yes. And it's been nominated for awards left, right and centre? Yes, yeah. So, um, so far it has, um, it was the winner of the children's section of the Indie, Australian Indie Book Awards, um, which was incredible, but it was um, a bit of a shame because um, the coronavirus, everything sort of happened. So I wasn't able to go up for the first big awards ceremony. Um, so that was all virtual, but it was still very special. And mm. um, since then, it's been nominated for a few different awards. There's one coming up soon, which is um, the Children's Book Council of Australia Award. Uh, so that's in there for a, um, it's shortlisted at the moment. So fingers crossed. Um, but yeah, it's been very exciting. Do you remember when the idea came to you to make a book about ugly animals? Yeah, it well, it was definitely a strange process. Um, I'm sure many people who create books, it's not never a simple sort of pops up. But um, I was actually studying, so I was studying natural history illustration at uni, um, and that's the only one in the Southern Hemisphere at Newcastle, and and I was lucky enough to um, get into that degree, and I absolutely adored it. And I was in my third year at the time. It was a three year degree with a fourth of honors, if you wanted to. Um, and so I was. Towards the end of the year, we had um, our major project where we could choose whatever theme we wanted and we had to create a range of different artworks to suit that theme. And so I chose uh, Australian Wetlands and I thought it was during that time when, I think it was 2017, I believe, um, and there was that big sort of craze about the bin chicken and everyone (laughs) loved the bin chicken and the ibis and I just thought, okay, well, why don't I kind of grab hold of that and see what I can do? So um, I did a portrait of an ibis and um, I just, I really, during that process, I really loved doing the, the kind of the ugly details um, of their wrinkly skin and the little kind of stray hairs and, and I really enjoyed that. Um, and so I handed that in and I started making like t-shirts and, and cards, just sort of playing with the idea. And then from that, I actually submitted that artwork into a um, competition and it was the Australian Museum uh, Scholarship. And they mm-hmm. had, it was the first year running um, of the Scientific Illustration Scholarship. And so I submitted that and a few other artworks and it actually ended up being the co-winner. And so that was very exciting. And they put all of the um, artworks in the paper in the Sydney Morning Herald. And so it just so happened that um, a the head of children's book publishing was reading the paper in Sydney <laughs> and stumbled across the ibis and read the article 
and said, oh, wow, that's, that'd be an interesting book concept. And so she contacted me through my uni and said, um, have you ever thought about making a children's book based on ugly animals? Mm. And I said, sure. And then that was it. <laughs> <laughs> it was very weird. That's a, it's a pretty epic story, actually being poached by a, a publisher to put together a children's book. <laughs> and, and before that, I was, because it was just towards the end of the year that I'd found out I'd won the competition, or was mm-hmm. the co-winner. And so um, I was kind of getting to that point where I was like, oh, crap, I'm about to go into the real world now. What am I going to do? And I was just working a casual retail job. And, and something like scientific illustration is such a difficult job to get a, you know, a full-time career in. Um, and so I was a bit worried. And then everything, stars aligned. And then um, I decided to do um, my honours year as well. So I ended up doing half of the artworks and book content during my honours year for my honours project. Uh, and then I finished the rest in the few months leading up um, to the due date. Can I ask what your honours project was on? Yeah, so I did. Um, so it was pretty much I would paint um, the 30, so half of the book, so 30 animals from the book. And I did um, some of the text and most of it was like um, for the writing side of things. I did um, looking into the correlation between ugly animals and their conservation status and just sort of seeing you know, seeing how people think about ugly animals and and if it's a deeper kind of um, something that we're ingrained in to be scared of things that are different and ugly or, uh, you know, adore the cute, beautiful animals. And and it was actually really interesting. So does that mean people are less likely to want to save an endangered uh, bottom-dwelling fish or something than they are a little giant panda or something? Yeah, well, I think... When it comes to scientists, um, I think scientists are generally more excited by the more unusual and strange things. So Mm. that's not the problem. But it comes down to the public awareness and the public's, you know, um, you know, interest in an animal. So I think when it comes to things like um, funding and and just sort of creating that excitement around an animal in order to help it with its conservation status or its population and things like that, humans the general public seems to be more interested by a cute cuddly panda than, you know, a purple pig nose frog. And <laughs> in many cases, the, the frog needs the help the most, you know. Well, you know, I'm an insect and spider guy, so you're, you know, preaching <laughs> the choir here. But <laughs> It'll slowly get there. There's a lot to go through that are ugly. And, and I think it's just, it's interesting to see people's reactions when they see an animal that is not the most aesthetically beautiful to the average person. But um, I think if you can still look at an animal regardless of what it looks like and still understand that it needs help because, you know, its its habitat is being destroyed or or it's, it's being hunted and poached, we need to help it regardless of what it looks like, then, mm. you know, that's the main issue. But would I be right in guessing that you kind of don't find them all that ugly? No. <laughs> I think... <laughs> That's, yeah, the other tricky part was was titling the book Ugly. And yeah. I obviously, I think that they're, they're beautiful. They have their own hidden beauties. And, and I think, you know, all of the, the funny little wrinkles or stuff like that, I think that's beautiful. Um, mm. And I think titling it Ugly was a really good way to, to basically get kids to pick up a book. Because that's, a lot of the time, that's how kids and, and some adults, how their minds work. And um, if I had tied it, titled it, you know, the Illustrated Encyclopedia of 
aesthetically challenged animals, then <laughs> most people are going to go, ah, I don't want that. <laughs> Non-standard, beautiful animals. Yes. Yeah, it's the- not as catchy. <laughs> yeah. So um, I personally think that, that they're beautiful and I think, you know, they are fine just the way they are. They don't need any help. Um, they're doing great in their own sort of lives. But um, I think, yeah, a lot of people do find them very ugly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you see something like a uh, you know, southern cassowary up close, you can kind of see a twinkly skin and its weird blobby you know, <laughs> chin flaps and things. But, you know, when you see one of them burning out of the rainforest, you, you, you can't think it's anything other than a you know, majestic, oh, yeah. beautiful being, right? Definitely. And I, and, and I had um, a really special uh, moment. I, get, I got to go over to Borneo with university um, and mm-hmm. it was um, mostly funded, so it was just a really good opportunity. And it was while I was doing the book, and we were able to go over and visit the proboscis monkey. And beforehand, you see pictures when you Google them, and they look pretty pretty funny. And um, <laughs> so I definitely had this kind of misconception that they were just these silly kind of monkeys, you know, that they were funny looking and, and sort of it's okay to laugh at them. And then when I got over there and we were on the houseboats or we were in the boats and we were going through the mangrove and seeing these these beautiful big male monkeys protecting their young and, and how just how beautiful they were. And that totally changed my perspective. So I, I that my aim was to try to get that across into the book. How did you choose your subjects? Were there some that just didn't make the cut that weren't weren't ugly enough yeah well i mean at first i thought oh this will be easy there's you know 60 there's there's hundreds if not thousands of ugly animals out there that i can <laughs> choose from and so i got about halfway and i was kind of writing a list of different ones so I, when i got to them i could do them and i got to about 30 40 and i was like crap <laughs> is am i gonna get the full 60 and i got a bit worried because <laughs> my generic kind of searches of ugly animals started to get fewer and fewer and mm. so um, after a while, I was like, okay, I've got to be, you know, smart about this. I've got to try and find the ones that, that most people don't see. You know, you see mm. the blobfish all the time and you hear about it. Um, and so at that point, I had to be a bit more creative and I type in things like fish with big nose or um, <laughs> <laughs> deep sea. There's a lot of weird looking deep sea things mm. and, um, you know, a hairless bird or a featherless bird and hairless mammal and and that was when more of the unusual ones started to pop up that really kind of fueled the fire. I mean, you can't complain that being your job, just sitting watching nature documentaries and flicking through books. And- <laughs> oh, yeah, it was it was tough. And, and I think if I had the opportunity again to kind of work with a scientist who was really educated on, on the massive range of animals then I would have definitely, um, I think, made a change to some of the animals included just because after publishing the book, I found there was a few more animals that I th- that were, you know, almost unheard of um, to the general public and I thought, mm. dang, that would have been a good one to include to help that's aware- that one's awareness. But um, maybe if there's ever a second edition, then I can include it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the book's going international now, right? It's being published over in Europe and America and things like that? It, yeah, so the, the first one um, to come out is in uh, England and it's coming out in the uh, Commonwealth um, areas. So it'll be in a few different um, locations and that's coming out in 12 days. And then it's coming out in America in... Just, uh, in October, I think. And then it's coming out in uh, Russia <laughs> soon. 
<laughs> so uh, yeah, that'll be interesting. And then um, uh, to be uh, translated and everything in um, China as well. All right. So is this, you've been through all this, you've published your first book, it's, it's out there, it's in the world, it's doing great. Do you have a career now? Is this it? Well, the, while I was doing, <laughs> it was, it, uh, it was crazy. So I I had prepared myself um, when I was at uni to understand that this is going to be a unique career field that I'm in. Um, mm. And I'm probably going to have to have a normal nine to five job or, you know, a part-time job for most of my life in order to be able to fund this sort of side of things because I, I understand that it's difficult at the best of times, but when there's so many other people out there doing what you're doing, um, it's hard. But So I was doing um, university and I had a part-time casual job and then um, it got to when everything was handed in and uni was over and so I was just working a normal job. And then all this stuff started happening and I was having to go down to Sydney to do a bunch of publicity stuff for the book. And, and I was like, oh, sorry, work, I, can I have these days off? Um, <laughs> and it started getting a bit more real that this was going to be my main focus. And, um, and then I, I got contacted. Um, uh, so it was at the end of um, last year that I thought, okay, I've got to get on to this uh, second book. And so... I did that one in half the time that I had done the first book. And so I did this in about six, even less months. Um, and I had no life. I had to spend, <laughs> in order to get it done and, and out by, say, like Christmas time this year, I had to power through and I would go to work a couple days a week. And the rest of the time I would sit and I would lock myself in my spare room and I would paint from until I just couldn't anymore and I had to sleep. And so it was no life, um, which was stressful and I wouldn't do it again. Um, <laughs> so it's fortunate that this, I'm working on a third book at the moment. Um, just, just starting to, um, get ideas for it and everything. And, and hopefully if things go well, um, I will have, um, a, um, a company giving me a grant essentially. So I can wow. use this as my full-time job for the year. So uh, can we get any, uh, hints as to what these upcoming books not officially, because it is very, very early stages, but it'll be the same, uh, fingers crossed, it'll be the same um, line of, of style of book, um, and it'll focus on uh, animals, potentially some plants as well, um, mm -hmm. and also just looking at animals that are unique again. So yeah, when you started your study and knew that you were going to become a scientific illustrator, was even doing you know, art for art's sake or being an author on the cards or were you planning to you know, being doing contract work for scientific organizations yeah well when i um first found out about the degree um i i was excited because i knew that the potential was there for doing things for textbooks um hmm. for you know australian geographic national geographic that was my my yeah. goal to to one day have my art in in either of those sort of um you know, areas. And I just thought that I, my life would probably just follow the trend of painting, you know, a, a piece for someone's house one day, you know, like a beautiful piece. Um, and then potentially doing some illustrations for, you know, maybe some articles or, and I thought that was pretty much where my life would kind of just stay. Um, mm. I, I knew that there was potential to get into things like children's books and and adult books, um, but it just seemed very 
far away and something that you have to kind of prepare physically and mentally for for a long time. So I didn't think that was for me anytime soon anyway. Mm. So can, for the listeners, can you tell us how it works? It's a picture book. Uh, all the illustrations are hand done and it's got a whole bunch of information about each animal, yes? Yes. So it's a hardcover, 128-page book um, and it has... Um, 60 animals that I find to be ugly or aesthetically challenged and um, it follows along the journey of... So each page has a um, full page dedicated to the animal and it's a watercolour illustration with some white gouache and um, it's in the information side of things. It uh, explains their descriptions, so the reasons behind their ugly features and it follows um, also their conservation status and explains why they're endangered or um, you know what struggles they face. And then it also looks at their diet, their habitat, and also um, some fun facts, which I think is very one of the most exciting part when I um, get around to actually doing the information side of things is finding out those fun facts. It must be amazing watching other people's reactions to it because i just think that if i discovered this book when i was 10 i would would have read it front to back and non-stop up until now so. <laughs> well I, that while i was making the book all i could have in my mind was because i don't i don't have any family members who are you know in the age range of this book and mm. i don't have any friends who are who are 7 to 12 so i had to kind of just think back to when i was that age and try and figure out what I would have wanted and what I would have mm. enjoyed. And, and that was all I could kind of go off. And I think if I went back in time and I and my mum bought this for me for Christmas, then I, I would really enjoy it. And that's all that mattered to me. Each illustration is just so immaculate and detailed. You said it was watercolour mostly. I mean, how, what's the process? How long does one of these take? Where do you even start with something that detailed and intricate? So um, each original um, artwork for the book was done on A3 size watercolour paper. Um, so I wanted to, I think if I had all the time in the world, I would have loved to go bigger because it just means you can fit more uh, details in the artwork really. At the beginning, because I was still very new to the process, was would take maybe three days. Um, and so something like the marabou stalk would take, I think that was one of my longest. Um, and that was because I pretty much did it to fill the entire A3 page. And so that was pretty big. Um, and so a lot of the time I use a mixture of wet on wet and wet on dry techniques with watercolor, just in order to get the blending. And then a lot of, um, final details are with, you know, a very small brush with, um, almost dry paint and to, in order to get those, those sort of, um, hairs and things like that. And uh, yeah, and so when that's done, um, usually I would scan it in um, and I would have to then put it in Photoshop because I was very particular and I wanted to do all this stuff to make sure that it was <laughs> perfect. Um, and I would, in Photoshop, you have the eraser tool and I would get it to maybe size two or tiny and I would go through and I would erase around each hair, each feather because uh-huh. nothing annoyed me more than seeing those artworks that were bulk selected and the background was removed and you could just mm. always tell. And so I wanted to do it justice and, and, and make it just as beautiful in real life as it was on the page. So that took a long time. But yeah, so that was pretty much the illustrations as a whole. So did you come into your scientific illustration training already with your art skills? 
Um, well, I, I finished year 12, um, and I had a gap year and then I went straight into my degree and, and in year 12, um, all I, I wanted to use was, um, graphite and colored pencil. And that was my area of interest. And I hated painting. Mum was <laughs> a avid painter and she was always saying, you know, you've got to try, try watercolor or try, um, acrylics or oils. And I was like, no, I hate it. So, um, <laughs> I reluctantly, um, in uni, they, the first sort of year essentially in my degree was teaching you the basics behind, um, the different sort of mediums you can use. Um, and so we did, you know, a, um, a course on graphite and then we would do them on pencil, uh, colored pencil, and then it was time for watercolor. And I, oh, if I had some of the pictures from some of the early watercolors, it was bad and that's not even being you know, nice that it was bad. And, um, (laughs) and I just, I didn't enjoy the process. I didn't enjoy what it looked like in the end. And, um, I really didn't want to do it, but because of the courses, there were a handful of tasks that we had to do in watercolor. And, um, so it was pretty, pretty slow, but I was almost forced into it. Um, and I'm glad that I was now because I think that I needed that kick to try something different. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely took, I would say until I chose to do it because I wanted to was maybe my third year, end of second year of uni. Um, and so it took a few years to be able to slowly get the hang of it. And then by the time I started creating for the book, um, I was only just getting to a stage where I was, was confident. So doing that extra 60 fueled my confidence after that. But it's such a, and must be such an interesting thing to learn. I mean, how much of it is illustration training and how much of it is science, anatomy training, all that stuff? Yeah, well, I, I uh, getting into it, I knew that it was going to be a um, science cross art degree. And I was not a confident, um, you know, I was not good with science and, and maths and things like that in high school. So I was a bit worried about that side of things. Um, but when I started, they had... Um, you could basically choose your courses, so you were you had to do the art courses, um, but you could choose whether you wanted to take the science route or you wanted to take the um, visual communications and design route. And so at the time, I was more confident in um, you know the creative side, so I decided to take the um, design sort of courses. So I I took a few that were about um, learning how to do Photoshop. Uh, learning about type and and text and and how to um, you know just things like that. We created our own for one of the tasks, um, while other people in my degree were doing um, you know biology courses and were were doing those sort of things. So it was everyone was at a, a different journey, which was really interesting. And I think if I could go back, I would um, kind of force myself to do a science one of the a few of the science courses um, because I think it would have really helped understand. Um, the anatomy of a lot of the animals that we were doing um, and and just just help me in a, a more broad area um, but after that we would do um, different courses and then um, it kind of varied um, but yeah I think at at the moment um, the co- <laughs> the degree has been cut which is uh, really, really crappy. But um, unfortunately, the uni saw it as, uh, I guess, not the... Because there was only a small group of people in the degree. Um, and 
they probably, who knows why, but it's basically been blended into a larger course of creative industries um, and you can major in illustration. But to the average person, that might be the same as natural history illustration, but they are widely different. And um, yeah, so it's a bit disappointing. In what way are they they wildly different? I mean, you might be an amazing artist and can draw anything that's put in front of you. If you just have those skills, could you be a scientific illustrator? Why do you need to understand all the anatomy and physiology and things? I think it's the same thing that goes either way. You know, uh, someone who might be really talented at at drawing natural history things are not going to be the right person for a, um, a viscom job that is to design you know a cd cover or anything like that but Mm. the stuff that we would learn in um natural history courses were were really understanding the form of an animal and and looking at it from almost inside out and so you would try and we would learn the you know the skeletal system of an animal and then we would learn the muscles and we would we would build up so you're getting everything right and proportionate and i think if i hadn't started to learn that then you automatically get things being mismatched and it's not quite right um and then you also look at uh studying them in the field and we would go on numerous um little sort of day trips um to wetlands and and just different places where we would sit and we would watch and we would take Mm. photos we would look at their movement and and all of that combined just really really helped which is i guess kind of how traditional art training works anyway like you see you're let's call them normal artists, you know, people that do portraits and, and landscapes and things. They're, part of their training is to understand how to draw faces by also studying the musculature and the, the, the bone structure of, of the face. But they kind of stop at humans and horses for some reason. They don't go on to the rest of, you know, the universe. Yes. You know, it depends what um, the person wants. If they want a a nice a pretty picture um or a beautiful artwork to look at versus a scientifically correct um informative piece it's they're just so different Mm. and i can't talk enough about how it's unfortunate that science and art are really almost pitted against each other sometimes or seen as two very separate things one as being expressive and creative and the other one as being cold and objective but i don't know I kind of find them a little bit indistinguishable after a while once you do them long enough, right? Yeah, I think one of the courses we did was um, we would we had a um, anatomy course, and so we went over to the wet labs at uni, and um, we were essentially told it was a um, elective, so you could choose to do it, um, but we were told to choose a body part um, of of a human, and um, we would prepare it in the next week, and we would have it, you know, we would have it from the cadaver. And um, you would draw it and make an information poster. And there were so many people in that elective that were from uh, medical um, courses that were choosing to do this illustration degree to further Mm. their learning of um, science and help to express to people who are more visually inclined um, parts about, you know, the spleen or, or stuff like that. And we were doing it to find out more information from the science side. And so it was a perfect blend of people and and getting to understand the the different side, but you really do realize how closely, you know, related they are. I was actually just having this discussion last week in a lab meeting that you know, for any science student that goes on to do honors or masters or something, I feel like, I don't want to say they have to, but I, I would love to see them all draw or paint or something their study species. Yeah. 
because scientists were trained to observe things and you don't get much more intense observation opportunity than when you actually have to sit and recreate it. Yeah, you, you mm. totally understand it in a different way and you, you see things differently when you sit down and you have to study it visually and, and try and recreate it. And it just, it really does make a massive difference to the quality of something afterwards. Like doing the book, there were so many things that you you just don't see until, you know, you see, I saw an ibis, you know, a lot of the time, especially in Sydney, you see them everywhere. But until I, I really looked closely and I studied, you know, the scratches on its beak and, and, and the details in its, in its sort of wrinkly face, I was like, oh, okay, wow. And then you, you put that <laughs> science with it and you understand, you know, the reasons why they have those long beaks. And, mm. and it, it's, yeah, it's really helpful. I remember having that experience when I was doing research on uh, the, uh, an animal called the orchid mantis. Oh, yes. Which people are sick of hearing me talk about. but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, it's all right. But I wanted to do a project where I wanted to make 3D models of them. I wanted to 3D print them. And so I hit the ground running and I did all this online courses learning how to do computer modeling and build something from scratch and... 3D program and then import that into a printer. And once I had my head around that, I said, right, now I'm going to build this mantis. And I sat down at my computer and I went, what, uh, what, what does a mantis look like? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, and I'd spent so many years studying this animal and looking at them and taking photos of them and observing them. But when I actually stopped to think about, all right, how does its head connect to its neck? Well, like, what angle does its legs come out of its body? Those tiny little things, I realized I had no idea. And so I had to go back to square one and sit with a piece of paper and a pencil and draw it from all these different angles and just going through that and just learned so much that I would never have any other way. Yeah, I, I, like when we were doing the degree, we had a, um, a room on uh, that was full of taxidermied animals. And so um, a lot of the tasks were just go upstairs, pick either a beetle or, you know, a bird, a mammal, whatever's in there and come down and put it in front of you, turn it around and just draw it from mm. different angles to really understand how its wing is connected and why it's, you know, I think a photo a lot of the time obviously flattens the image, but um, you just don't get that same sort of um, form to it. And so when you're drawing something, you might see like a little thing sticking out and you're like, oh, okay, whatever, I guess I'll include that. But if you have it in front of you and you turn it around and you realize that, you know, it's just a bit of a bung wing or it's actually meant to be part of that animal. It, it makes a big difference to, to what you're doing. And as, as a zoologist, you're looking at structures in such uh, detail that you actually start to come up with hypotheses about, oh, hang on, this actually might do this for this animal. Then there's a research project there and you can actually add to our understanding of its biology just by going through this process. Yeah, it, yeah, it is wild. Because I've tried to instill this uh, idea in a couple of my students and things like that, and uh, it terrifies them because they immediately think that drawing or painting is not them. It's not something they can do. Do you have any tips for convincing people that it's something you can do and that it's not scary at all? <laughs> Often I'd, I'd have people being like, oh, wow, I love what you do. I wish I could do it, or I, I'll never be able to paint or draw something like that and or whatever and and I, I understand how it feels because I was at that step only a few years ago but I think a lot of the time they don't allow themselves the opportunity to actually practice and I think it's it's one of those things that 
you're not going to become good at a sport if you just sit there and you say, oh, I wish I was good at that sport. You have to, mm. you have to practice. And it's the same things where with art where you're learning, you know, you're getting muscle memory of using a paintbrush and you're understanding the different pressure um, and the different amounts of water and paint applied, how that creates different things. And you can't be hard on yourself if you don't allow yourself to just try. And mm. and I'll be doing the same thing when I when I eventually start with oils and, and acrylic and <laughs> and start that new medium. I'll be in the exact same spot as everyone else, going, oh, "I wish I could do that," and and I'll never be that good. But you just have to allow yourself to be crap, and then don't <laughs> don't hate yourself. Allow it, enjoy it. You can have a laugh, and then just slowly improve. Um, and then you can look back over time and compare it to what, what, what you had done in the past and see your progress. Mm. We're now recording this in, are, are you still in lockdown? Yes, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> what does that mean for you? Is this just a great time to get a hell of a lot of work done then? Well, at the, um, so when lockdown pretty much first uh, started officially, I was at the tail end of the um, content for the second book. And so I was, it was, um, very close to the wire of whether I was going to finish on my due date or not. And so I was <laughs> freaking out. And so it actually worked really well with me um, that uh, I had said to work, you know, I'm probably going to have to take the rest of this month off to sit at home and have no life. Um, and they were like, oh, you know, we understand, blah, blah. And then within the next week, lockdown happened. <laughs> and so they all, you know, got time off as well. And they weren't worried about being understaffed. And um, I got to sit down and not feel guilty about, just staying inside and painting, which was good for me. <laughs> but you're also on the run trying to promote your first book. Yes, that that was really <laughs> disappointing that so many of the things that happened were like the award ceremonies. One of the big ones that I was uh, shortlisted in recently was the Arbias, which is the Australian Book Industry Awards. And that is a big, fancy red carpet event in Sydney at Darling, mm. Darling Harbour. And it had, um, you know, some of, some of my... Yeah, really um, admired people that were going to be there and I was potentially going to be sitting next to authors that I read um, their books as kids and I was in the same category and and I was really excited. So that was really disappointing that, um, you know, I didn't get to see, you know, um, uh, some of the, like Andy Griffiths and Terry Denton. Mm. I, I was close to being sitting near them and, um, <laughs> you know, Kitty, Kitty Flanagan and, and just people like that that I would never have thought I'd be in the same kind of room as. Um, but there's always next year. <laughs> I mean, it is odd hearing different people's perspectives on this weird time in history. I feel like it's a time when creatives are kind of, that we're, that we're quite comfortable, yes. actually. <laughs> we're doing just fine. All the other people are losing their minds and we're going, oh, well, you don't stay inside for, for three days in a row? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really weirded out by all these people on social media saying, I'm just so bored, I have nothing to do. And I'm thinking, I've never had more to do than... <laughs> and you, you see all the people start doing all the creative things and 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 realising um, how that is a great way to pass time and how if you are bored, just doing something creative really frees your mind in a sense. And, and speaking of creativity, this is where my whole science and art are the same thing kind of bent comes from because you're bringing something into existence that wasn't there before, be it a work of art or be it a piece of knowledge exactly, yep. that needed to be researched in some way, you're, you're, you're creating 
something. Definitely. And you're helping the community understand that in however form it is. And if people want to get their hands on some of your art, you're selling it online as well. I, um, I have... Uh, a few prints of previous artworks that I've done in university on my Etsy, and that's just semi-Bailey art. But I have um, all of the originals from the first book and now all of the originals from the second book. And I've had a few people ask if I'm selling the originals and I I don't have them listed anywhere yet. And I just, I'm waiting. <laughs> I don't know what I'm waiting for, but um, I don't know. I'd, I'd love to be able to do a big exhibition with all of the paintings Um before I started selling individuals mm. off. Um, but I've got to wait to try and get the money for all of the frames. The best I can do at the moment is um, in the book. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, so you own all your original still. It's not like the publisher. Yeah, they, yeah. Were, they were really great. Publishers were um, absolutely amazing um, with, with giving me the freedom, um, allowing me to keep all my originals. I obtained the full copyright of my originals um, but if I want to make prints, I just have to check in with them and we find out what works with both of us. Um, if I want to make merch, we obviously do that together. Um, but yeah, they were really great in saying just, you do what you want to do. Um, if there's any issues, we'll help you along the way, but you know, it's, it's up to you. So that definitely helped my, um, me being very particular about things. And yeah, imagine getting rid of the originals or selling the originals. It's a tough thing to let go of. Yeah, and I, I had um, an interesting um, sort of thing happen after the first book had come out at the end of the year. I had a, a company um, contact me and, and it was sort of going to be in the works that I would create some illustrations for them that they would put on to uh, some clothing. And um, it would be going down to a different state uh, and taking two weeks out of my time to create some art. Uh, and all I had been used to at the time was um, my contract with my publishing company, Hachette, and how good they were uh, and how they helped me understand any, everything. Um, and so I was used to that kind of professionalism. And, um, and I got a bit of a shock when, you know, a, a, big, a big company as well, um, contacted me and asked, asked me all the stuff and I was eager to do it, but they were very reliant, uh, hesitant to, um, give me the information for the contract. And so that mm. kind of put my barriers up a bit. I was a bit wary. Um, and it got to maybe a handful of days before I was actually meant to leave to be there. I said, can I find out some information, please? <laughs> um, you know, like, am I going to be paid? Um, that would really be interesting. Like, uh, of course, surely I will remain. Uh, re- I will retain um, the copyright from these originals, blah blah. And then, um, very reluctantly, um, they eventually told me the day before I was meant to um, say that the weekend before. Um, they said that no, we will be keeping that um, the copyright, the originals, uh, and we'll only be paying you X amount, which was minuscule in the in the scheme of things, um, and. Uh, it was, and I wouldn't be getting any um, cut from the sales of the clothes. Uh, And yeah, it was really shocking. So I, I, um, fortunately I I said no. Um, And I, it was very scary to say no because it was a big opportunity, but um, Mm. I just thought that, you know, who am I to tell people not to um, let companies rip you off if I, if I let them rip me off. And that's the big forgotten side of 
arts careers is you have to be have to almost have a law degree at the same time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, it's it's complex. It's really complex. The the stuff as well is with with book contracts. There's all of this stuff where it's not an up. It's not a typical um, uh, payment. You know, it's not a general. Um, like you get paid hourly or you get paid mm. per artwork. I mean, some companies might do that, but um, there we have things called advances. So you get paid um, a, a portion and then that changes. And then you have things like royalties, of course, and and um, and that changes with things. And, and I was so new to all of this stuff that I had absolutely no idea what was happening. And I'm telling my mum, like, what does this word mean? And and she's Googling stuff at her end. And I'm like, I don't know. And, and they were really good. And when they sent the contract, um, I highlighted all the words I didn't understand out of like this 40 page document. And I said, can you explain what this means in, you know, layman's terms? And, um, and they were really good and they explained everything really simply for me. So that was a good way that I kind of slowly learned. Well, let's give the publishers a shout out. Oh yes, Hachette, Hachette Australia, absolutely amazing. And and so the imprint of that is Lothian, which is the children's book um, side of things. So it's published by Lothian, but um, that is an imprint of Hachette Australia. And if people want to get a copy of this book, it's everywhere? Yes, well, um, pretty much. It, it definitely support your local bookshop if, um, if you can go outside. Um, otherwise, um, it's available online from your big retailers, small retailers, um, pretty pretty much everywhere at the moment. All right, awesome. And people can follow you online? Yes. So I have, um, I think I'm most active on Instagram and that is just Sammy Bailey. So B-A-Y-L-Y. That's always a tricky one that gets people. Um, but yeah, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. Um, I just made a TikTok. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for coming and talking to me, Sammy, and good luck with the second and third and fourth and fifth book. I'm sure they're all on the way. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. No worries. Thanks again. I'll see you later. See ya. That was our interview with Sammy Bailey, author and illustrator of the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Ugly Animals. You can check her out online at her website, sammybailey.com. That's S-A-M-I-B-A-Y-L-Y.com. You can check us out online at insituscience.com or we're on social media at insituscience. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time.